Open the podcast doors, Hal. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey, welcome back to our ongoing presentation of 2001 Beyond 50. This event, once again, was organized by our friend, Professor Nathan Abrams, and was held at Bangor University on the 16th of June, 2018. In this, our part three, we're going to air a film symposium, which was hosted by Nathan and features key academics speaking in conversation, including Professor Ian Hunter, Mr. Peter Kramer, and Professor Robert Kolker. Professor Ian Hunter is a professor of film studies at Leicester Media School, where he teaches film studies and adaptation, specifically cult film, film genres, and literature on screen, as well as, drumroll please, Stanley Kubrick. Now, Professor Hunter has written and edited many books, most recently, Cult Film as a Guide to Life, Fandom, Adaptation, and Identity. Peter Kramer is a senior fellow in the School of Art, Media, and American Studies at the University of East Anglia, UK. He's been the author of two books published by BFI Film Classics, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, and 2001 A Space Odyssey, as well as A Clockwork Orange, Controversies, published by Palgrave in 2011, and more recently, he was the co-editor of Stanley Kubrick, New Perspectives, from Black Dog Publishing in 2015. He's written numerous essays on the films and career of Stanley Kubrick, Robert P. Kolker is Professor Emeritus at the University of Maryland. He is the author and editor of the great book, A Cinema of Loneliness, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, New Essays, The Altering Eye, The Oxford Handbook of Film and Media Studies, The Cultures of American Film, Form, and Culture, and The Extraordinary Image, Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick, and The Reimagining of Cinema. He is currently working on Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick, and the making of his final film with our good friend, Nathan Abrams. Have a listen. Apart from me also want to say, here are my three fellow hominids um, <laughs> who are gonna recreate the sequence above their heads through mine. You know you've agreed to that, right? Yeah? Um, okay, Ian, Peter, Robert, um, I mean, let's start with a, an opener, an easy one. I mean, what is it about 2001 from a film perspective that this film has such a lasting import and impact? All three of you, um, you know, from a film perspective. Yeah. Why, why are we discussing it today and not, um, what was it, Kate and Aston of Hit? I was. Um 
with all of the um, publicity about the 70 millimeter original print being shown at Cannes, got me to think about the first time I saw the film, which is when it first came out. And I was living in London, and I went to see it at a Leicester Square Cinerama Theater. And I was completely unimpressed. <laughs> and I was unimpressed because it was too large. The screen was too big. I couldn't get to it. And it wasn't until I got back to the States and saw it again on a smaller screen and then went pretty much every year to see it again did the film's energy and precision and mysteries become so important to me personally and to my intellectual life and to my, uh, to my work in, uh, in film that this film became a kind of hallmark of what it means to use film as an intellectual medium or perhaps more correctly, a, a means of using the intellect to get to the emotions, which is what Kubrick does so well. Um, his films are so full of passion, but they're passion that reaches you um, headfirst. Yeah, uh, my experience actually was in the late 70s as a teenager watching within a few months of each other, both 2001 and Clockwork Orange, and I decided maybe there is something in this film thing. Uh, maybe I did not come from a background where this was encouraged in any way, shape or form, but I had some friends, we went to the movies, and, and I thought uh, maybe I could study this. Maybe I could make a, a career out of this eventually. It took a while, but that's what I did. And I must say that for me, the passion was in Clockwork Orange and not in the healthiest possible way, maybe. <laughs> it made me worry a lot. And my first ever essay that I wrote uh, on any film ever was in school. I had to write about the novel of Clockwork Orange. I couldn't write about the film. That would, would have been too daring. But I wrote it about the novel, partly to come to terms with my own passionate response to the film, uh, which I felt slightly dangerous. Uh, but 2001 for me was a, a watershed moment as well because I actually had been a science fiction fan, uh, but novels. Uh, I actually looked down on films because films were not convincing. Films were about characters, not ideas. Uh, and with 2001 The Space Odyssey, the movie, I actually felt there was something else going on. I couldn't quite articulate what the ideas might be, uh, but, uh, but I knew there was something else going on which was more akin to what interested me in science fiction novels than what was going on in most science fiction films. And uh, I must also say that, of course, having been a fan of novels, I read the novel several times. And I must say, for once in my life, the novel was disappointing in the sense that what was interesting about the films were the ideas I had to come up with myself rather than the ones that Clark came up with in the novel. So uh, although I did, in the sense, find all the answers to all the questions in the film, in the novel, uh, I don't think that was very interesting. So I, when I returned uh, years later to the film, it was actually not trying to find those answers, but in the sense, explaining the mysteriousness of the film itself. So that, that was my entry into not only uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, but into what, for me, later became film studies. I first saw a film in the, in the early 70s, and my experience was very much like Pierce's. I uh, saw it with my parents, and I came out raving, and they said, 
Well, we like the stuff about the monkeys, and after that, we just don't And since then, obviously, I've seen the film many, many times, and a lot of the work I've done on the film has been about how it developed as a cult movie, as one of those films that people do go back to and watch time and time again, and it becomes part of their life, and become very passionate about it, and they almost, in a sense, measure their own sort of development as, not just as film fans, but as people <coughs> against their experience of that film over a very long sort of trajectory. And the best I can come up with is that it's one of those rare films that combines both a very intense sensory experience, you have to watch it and experience it, with a level of intellectuality you don't get in most movies, combined with the fact that it's a very, very open text, partly because it's about issues that have no answer anyway. Um, and so you have to go back and watch the film time and time again. Not only to have the immersive experience of looking at the extraordinary sets and finding more details every time in the corners of the screen, but also to try and figure out what on earth it is about. And so it requires you to watch it time and time again, and then to go away and think about it, and talk about it, and read the book, and then go back and watch it again, and then it takes you on another journey, and this carries on through your life, and you find new questions to ask and to answer all the way through. I think another reason, possibly, for, for this great fascination is partly what we're looking at this morning, with that it's sort of, it's a, the film is like a stargate itself, into lots of other fields. So it makes you think about religion, and it makes you think about science and anthropology and AI and so on. So there are many entries into the film and many ways in which you can go away and read up about Nietzsche, and read up about Richard Strauss, and read up about Johann Strauss. And it can take you into lots of different kind of worlds for you to explore, which are actually quite separate from the experience of the film itself. So I think it's that combination of it being extraordinary kind of sensorium and being a great intellectual experience that has given it such longevity as a, as a cult movie. And it's something that becomes very much one of the key things you think about and it's when you think about the largest issues in the world. And a lot of people have over the years, and Peter's written about, seen it very much as, well, it's extraordinary, it's a highly scientific, abstract movie, which also makes you think of very mystical religious, spiritual experiences in an age largely of, of secularism. So there's an awful lot of different ways you can experience that film, well beyond it being a, a piece of entertainment. I mean, I, I could follow on, because when I returned to 2001, it had nothing to do with Kubrick, nothing to do with film art. It had to do with a list of the 50 top-grossing films of the decade 67 to 76, and to my, in the United States, and to my surprise, I was writing a book about that period, from the point of view, not of the best films, just the most successful films at the box office. To my surprise, both A Clockwork Orange and 2001 were in there. And I thought, what's going on here? These were popular, mainstream movies. Uh, and I think that has been my main interest in the last few years, actually. So I'm, I'm at all. I'm, I'm absolutely willing to engage anyone, uh, including all the people who gave uh, talks this morning, uh, in a discussion about all these valid, important, scientific, philosophical issues. But what interests me is it was mainstream entertainment at the time of its release. Uh, and for me, the big eye-opener were the, the, the stash of so-called fan letters in, in the Kubrick archive at the University of the Arts London. It had been open for about a year when I first went there. And I just looked at hundreds of letters. And uh, although some of these letters have been published in Jerome Agel's The Making of 2001, it was only a small selection 
when I looked at those dozens and dozens and into the hundreds of letters, what I found is that a lot of different kinds of people really liked the movie. So from, from seven-year-old boys to 13-year-old girls to housewives to priests to whatever. Uh, it was a wide range of people, and they seemed to, by and large, although there were, you know, 10% of the letters maybe were, were negative, but by and large, people loved the movie. And these were regular people. These were not experts. These were not scientists, philosophers. These were regular cinema goers, and they seemed to love the movie. And I, I thought that was intriguing. Uh, because we are used to approach the film today, as, as was I in the late 70s, uh, as, as great art. You know, it's almost a forbidding piece of art. You, know, you have to really try hard. You have to be completely open and then very thoughtful. And you have to you have to have all kinds of special conditions to really engage with that film. And my experience from the letters I wrote was the exact opposite. People went to the cinema. They trusted the marketing. Big, big uh, roadshow release, Cinerama film for the whole family. They went in there, and the majority seemed to have loved it. And then I was interested in why, so I can say a little bit more about that later. But that, for me, was actually the, the second entry point, apart from the personal was that this was mainstream entertainment in 1968-69 for you know, a, a, what seemed to be a cross-section of the American population. And I thought that was utterly fascinating. Which became increasingly unusual after 1968, when so many... I know it started production in 1965, so in a sense it was one of the last of the big blockbusters, like sort of Cleopatra and Spartacus and so on. In that, in that sense, it was kind of looking backwards as much as looking forward. But from 1968 or 1967, we had The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde and then The Wild Bunch and so on, the so-called New Hollywood, which wasn't all that was going on in Hollywood at the time, but it's certainly most critically acclaimed. A lot of the films were narrow cuts towards quite specific audiences, particularly young men. And in that sense, 2001 was quite an unusual movie because, as people said, it was for all the family that had a, a G certificate or an A and then a U certificate over here. It's also that period uh, in which everybody is absorbing what Kubrick is doing and suddenly up comes Star Wars and Close Encounters, films profoundly influenced by, uh, by 2001. But it takes that period of digestion, of absorption. Well, I'm glad you're saying that, because obviously what I found, when you look at any list of the top-grossing films of all time, Star Wars in the United States, Star Wars, apart from Gone with the Wind, which is totally exceptional, and Snow White maybe, uh, is, is really far ahead of the competition. And, and then, of course, you make that link. Uh, and then the more you read up on, uh, on, on Lucas and uh, Spielberg, and then, of course, James Cameron, uh, who topped them all with, with Avatar, in, uh, according to some lists, not all of them, uh, depends on how you adjust for inflation and things like that. Uh, they were profoundly influenced by the film in the same way that a lot of the people writing to Kubrick were. Now, they didn't all... I mean, I never followed up on it. You know, I, 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 I couldn't, you know, trace down the people who wrote these letters, say what became of your fascination with. But we know enough from later interviews with, uh, with uh, Spielberg, uh, uh, Lucas, Cameron, and then all kinds of other, Gaspar Noe, Ridley Scott, uh, Ridley Scott uh, Lana Wachowski. Uh, a lot of these people said, look, this wasn't just an important film experience. This made me think I could and would want to be a filmmaker, and it would influence the films that they made. So for me, uh, 2001 wasn't just a success on its own right, a mainstream success, but it, uh, 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 after a period of 10 years, almost 10 years, 
it actually started to reshape what we think of as, as mainstream cinema altogether. Uh, because through Star Wars and Close Encounters, uh, a, a different way of imagining what cinema could be uh, uh, came came back in a sense. Because obviously it was the epic tradition of Spartacus, but in space, you know. So in a sense, the t- 2001 translated the pre-1967 epic blockbusters uh, into a science fiction format, which then was picked up on. Uh, by uh, Lucas and Spielberg in, in 77, I think. That was one of them. Now, a lot of people use, and, and I'm, I can see why, they use 2001 to, to say how terrible contemporary cinema is. You know, a lot of people will want to do that, and I can understand why. I'm more interested in the continuities. So, for example, the spiritual dimension, uh, you know, it's clearly there. We talked a lot about hell as God, but obviously the monolith and the creators of the monolith seem to be the divine figures. And Clark's quote, uh, usually it's quoted as uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is like magic, but you can also say any sufficiently uh, advanced technology is like the divine. You know, so so obviously, and, and Clark said it, we made a religious movie and all those kinds of things. And I think that's a strict uh, direct continuity to Close Encounters, which references the Ten Commandments. It is about by a guy who goes up a hill to meet something divine and goes up to heaven. And, although Moses didn't do that. Um, <laughs> that was another guy. Um, and uh, Star Wars with the Force, uh, which is another non-Christian, in this case non-Christian uh, or non Judeo-Christian uh, conception of, of religiosity or, or spirituality. Uh, so I'm, I'm very interested in the continuities. But at the same time, 2001 and all of Kubrick is inimitable. Yes. As much as people try to make films that are like 2001, as much as critics say Interstellar or um, Annihilation are films just like 2001, they're not. And one of the things that's going on, I think, in in this film and in all of Kubrick's work is that Kubrick is a trickster. Um, Or to use another term, he has a lot of chutzpah. He does things that no filmmaker, no artist would think of doing. I mean, you can just point to the the cut between the bone and the and the uh, the orbiting uh, missile, um, the death by graphics, which I think still is one of the most extraordinary <coughs> things in in the film. When Hal kills off the hibernating astronauts, and all you see are the uh, the life signs, the the concept of the Jupiter room. I mean, these are things that come from an an. an an imagination that is at the same time profound and also full of the joy of discovery. Mm. And I think this is evident in, in almost all of his films, but particularly in uh, in this one. I mean, one of the things that uh, the work that I've been doing in the archive and talking to a lot of other researchers in the archive is that I mean, there are still disagreements, but one of the things that we seem to have come across is the idea that Kubrick was really using filmmaking as an exploration. Uh, 
so there's this common view that Kubrick starts out knowing exactly what he wants and then just tortures everyone to the point that they give it to him. Uh, and what we have, especially Katrina McAvoy, uh, have in, in looking at the production of the films, uh, a range of the films, uh, what we found is that Kubrick actually uh, was open to possibilities and, and was trying to push uh, the production situation into an area where what would happen was not predictable. Uh, so in the sense that he did not know what he wanted exactly, he would know it when, when, he's, when he finally saw it, but he wouldn't know it in advance. So, so the, some of the decisions that I have been looking at it, through the correspondence, not through interviewing people, and we will, might hear different perspectives later on when people actually talk about who worked with, and, with Kubik and on the film, but from the correspondence, it's, it's very clear that some extraordinarily radical decisions were uh, arrived at in a really roundabout way. Uh, for example, to remove the voiceover, uh, that that was a, a arrived at in a really roundabout way, which you know took, in, in my estimation, about two years from the original idea in, in mid '66, maybe that whole voiceover thing and this over explicitness of the film, to have the the prologue uh, and to have the voiceover and to have the endless dialogue sequences. You know, I love the dialogue sequences with schizophrenic hell, where one part of hell explains the other one. Uh, I love all that, and at some point Kubrick said, "Let's take all of that out." Let's take all of it out. And I thought, but that wasn't a decision that, that, that is arrived at, you know, in a moment of inspiration. I think that took two years of, of thinking about what kind of movie he was making and what the possibilities were. Uh, and and it, 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 it developed an enormous momentum where also the, the soundtrack then had to, the, the score had to go. The original score, which which I saw the correspondence with Alex North, where Alex North, you know, is busy already recording the score, and Kubrick says, I don't know about the score, <laughs> you know, I don't know about. It. And Alex North, of course, I, I believe was uh, really not happy until not at all, uh, you know, uh, he never forgave Kubrick for that. But I think it all accumulates. Uh, uh, but these are not moments of inspiration. These are moments of hard, the, the process of hard work, paying attention and seeing possibilities that no one could have seen at the beginning of the process. Let's also emphasize kind of a slight change in the view of Kubrick, not as any less of an auteur, but someone who wasn't trying to impose something on the film so much as was very closely involved in intense collaboration over a long period of time. And so one reason, I think Jan said to me once, that one reason why there, you would have so many takes is precisely that kind of exploration, because... Um, film stock is about the cheapest element of film production, so why not take take after take until you get something which jumps out of you that's new? So there's much more of an emphasis now on the writing on Kubrick as, as collaboration and process, rather than the idea of him as this kind of magus stuck somewhere in, in England, desperately trying to make a, a perfect preformed film, which, like Hitchcock, he somehow already got in his head. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, one of the things that Nathan and I have discovered in, in looking at Eyes Wide Shut is the element of patience, which is quite the opposite, I think, of the, of the other myth of Kubrick as the, the slave driver in 1670 takes. Instead, we have a, a filmmaker who takes all the time he needs and who asks the same of his collaborators and his players, just to go and 
do what needs to be done. And if the set's not right, build a new set. If the actor has other commitments, let the actor go and get someone just as good. There's that element of care hmm. and craft that is not only something that Kubrick wanted and needed, but perhaps unlike most other filmmakers that Kubrick only had. There are not many filmmakers who had that kind of luxury of time and economy, which is another thing that he practiced that allowed him to have that time. Um, there's the story about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson visiting Kubrick uh, on the set of, I guess, of Eyes Wide Shut and saying, how can you get along with so few people in your crew? And Kubrick saying, why do you need any more? Um, and this really was what enabled him to take the time and to make the kinds of films that he did. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm also interested at the same time, uh, which is actually closely connected, is to say that he seemed to be a, a financially very responsible filmmaker. Uh, and I think that allowed him. I, I still haven't quite read all the new books on 2001, um, and but I read James Fenwick's uh, PhD thesis on Kubrick as a producer. Uh, and the the big question, of course, is why would uh, MGM fund something like uh, 2001 in the first place? And secondly, uh, when Kubrick made all these radical decisions towards the end of the process. Uh, drop prologue, drop uh, voiceover, drop most of the dialogue, uh, replace the score uh, with pre-recorded uh, music. Why didn't MGM interfere? Because it was a massive investment. It was uh, $11 million at a time when the average movie cost about $1.5, $1.7 million. So this was a studio that loved to interfere. Yeah, so what, what happened there? And it's still unclear to me, but I'm sure... Either the books that are that are already out and haven't written yet, uh, haven't read yet, or the books to be written by some of the people in this room uh, will clarify this. Uh, but I think the, one of things one of the things that must have worked in Kubrick's favor is that he was seen as fiscally responsible, that he wouldn't do things that were you know indulgent or or, or, or pointless or wasteful. That there would be uh, uh, even a commercial reason, not just an artistic reason, but a commercial reason behind it, uh, and that, that he was trusted in that. And of course, from Spartacus onwards, he had uh, a, a string of he had three hits in a row, which in Hollywood is fairly rare. Uh, so, so I think he had the track record and, and he had the sense of fiscal responsibility. Uh, and I, I found actually a quote where uh, O'Brien, uh, is it Robert O'Brien? I can't remember now, the, the, the president of the MGM at the time said, you know, he, he's that, that amazing thing. He's both a great artist and, you know, he's characterized by economy, meaning he does what he does reasonably cheaply. Uh, so, so I think that that's also quite important that he, he, he got his place in the industry uh, by a certain commercial instinct combined with a certain fiscal responsibility, and that gave him the freedom to do things that no one else would even think of. Can I, can I tell you something about this? A very practical example. He changed the set on uh, Ice White Shot. It's quite clearly a big commitment financially because he was very responsible. I spoke to Terry Semmel and Warner Brothers and raised the budget, approved the budget, 
accordingly and then we continue. So it wasn't just a frivolous act. Yes. And Kubik was very, I mean, as I understand it, um, Kubik was very commercial minded. His, his films right. weren't peculiar art movies made for strange personal reasons. He very often made films with very much an eye on the moment however long the film took to make, and for a commercial audience. So <laughs> the moment might have passed, <laughs> unfortunately. A Clockwork Orange is very much a kind of youth-orientated, violent, thoughtful science fiction film that absolutely really does fit into what was going on in the new Hollywood. The Shining was a horror film made at the time, and the horror film was doing well with one of Hollywood's biggest stars in it, and Eyes Wide Shut was starred the biggest couple in the whole of show business. So these were very commercial decisions they made in many ways to make those to make those movies. For me, what what became very interesting was in particular this this odd thinking that 2001 really was conceived by MGM and to some extent by Kubrick and his team as a film for everyone. And I traced it a little bit, so there was a real effort, what with a reputation of science fiction or technology or science-based movies as, or being directed to, to men or being appealing to men, there was a real effort being made to go into women's magazines to get uh, columnists and, and journalists from women's magazines to write about the film, maybe in the context of what is the woman of the 21st century gonna, what, what's her world going to be like uh, but, but even more so the, the attempt to appeal to children that, that was quite extraordinary and, and one of the, uh, the, the most touching documents that I found you might think it's strategic, I think it's genuine, but he writes to the BBFC, uh, which had given the film a A rating, which meant that people might be uh, um, reluctant to take their children to it. And the reason was, actually, from the correspondence, it's very clear, that it was on a big screen. It was on a huge screen, uh, initially on those big Cinerama screens, and it might scare children. That, that was the reason why they gave it an A rating. And Kubrick said, look, First of all, I have a list of organizations here which support the Parent-Teacher Organization, uh, Association of the United States, and all kinds of other ch child-oriented organizations which approved of the film and said, look, we have used that film in, for, in school and whatever, or in relation to school teaching. Uh, so he said this, and, and he also said, and, and in any case, MGM has funded this film, and MGM is entitled to make its money back. So since this is a film suitable for children, I want it to get the U rating. Uh, in order to, not only because it is actually for children, it's good for children, and we've shown that with the documentation from the States, but also I want MGM to be able to make its money back. So it, I thought that was quite touching. And then, of course, they changed it to you. And what, why? Because the, the roadshow release in the Cinerama theaters had come to an end, largely, and it was now on general release on a smaller screen, which they felt children could deal with. As there's a pause. <laughs> I think this is a good time to throw open two questions. So we'll come around then. I saw Rod's finger go up first in the front. One aspect um, that I was particularly fascinated all my life, actually, in 2001, was the groundbreaking special effects. And specifically, it seems to me that Kubrick works against Hollywood workflows. Like, 2001 became a kind of R&D uh, exercise in developing things, especially with the people. 
And also, he doesn't like, except for Spartacus, where it's very much within Hollywood workflows, he doesn't like things like matte paintings, which is the bread and butter of early Hollywood cinema. He prefers the hanging miniature, like in the scene in the TNA pit, you know, and stuff. I, I don't know, does anyone have any thoughts about that, the special effects aspect of the film? Well, I can, may I advertise a book uh, called The Hollywood Renaissance, which I co-edited, which has a, a brilliant piece by Julie Turnock, who's written a wonderful book about special effects in 70s Hollywood, as an auteur-driven sub-industry. That's the fascinating turn that she gives it. Coming out of avant-garde cinema, the whole special effects uh, uh, tradition that, that made a, such a big impact in the late 60s, especially, comes out of avant-garde cinema. There were a lot of avant-garde filmmakers directly or indirectly involved, and she did her book about that, uh, uh, but she also wrote specifically for our collection on the Hollywood Renaissance, she, she wrote an essay on the special effects for 2001. And I, my memory and my knowledge of special effects is so bad, I, I cannot dare to repeat uh, what she argued. Uh, but, but, it is, but also it highlights that I think one of the tragic ironies of the career of Stanley Kubrick is that he got his only Oscar for the special effects for 2001. And I think even in some of the documentaries, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's even in Jan's or in some of the other documentaries, I think the special effects people didn't seem to be happy about that. I try to convince my students that there's a direct line from Voyage to the Moon, the Melies film, to 2001. And then there's that lapse that we talked about and we have Spielberg and Lucas and then CGI and special effects change and um, the handmade quality of 2001 is lost. And to my eyes, so much of CGI looks like so much other CGI. Uh, and that's not true, certainly, of this film. No, CGI dates much more quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other day I went back and looked at one of the Lord of the Rings films, which when I first saw it looked quite extraordinary, and now it looks a bit like a cut scene from a video game. So, <laughs> two, Ooh, cruel. Yeah. <laughs> well, it does. But, um, whereas 2001 still has that absolute pristine quality, which doesn't seem to date at all. We go to Rob, and then you go hand up, and then Matt, and then anyone. <laughs> um, I'm slightly worried that this is a blasphemous kind of question, but um, when I looked at 2001 recently, I, I feel like the voyage to the moon, the voyage to Jupiter are timeless bits of film. Uh, and it reminds me of the dawn of man and then the voyage afterwards. Don't, to me, they feel that they haven't lasted or endured quite as well. And I was curious, they, is there any evidence that he, that Kubrick approached this film in uh, different sections, you know, in, in different mindsets. Like now, this, the Dawn of Man, he did under a different set of ideas than, say, the Voyage to Jupiter. I'm, I'm just curious about how these. It's such a segmented film in a way, isn't it? So, was there any evidence that he's operating differently in those different segments? Well, there, the the theme of violence that set in the Dawn of Man sequence is, you know, sort of ripples through the whole, uh, the whole rest of the film. 
So the violence that's done by one hominid to the other is the violence that Hal commits on the crew and the violence that uh, Bowman commits on Hal. And so I think it's of a piece. And there's something in, about the beginning and the end, that link. And I'm quite conscious of saying something because that remains one of the great enigmas of the film. What does the floating fetus at the end of the film have to do with the, uh, the dawn of man? Um, is this the dawn of the post-human, which I'm more and more inclined to, to think? Can I just also say that in terms of the time frame, the, uh, the dawn of man sequence, first of all, was shot by a second unit. The, 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 the images, the, the big transparencies, were shot by second unit, and the film, oh, yes, oh, yeah, and the uh, the actual work with the actors was uh, the year after principal photography, the main principal had had been ended. So it, it's it's so the, the film was shot. Was it it's, uh, December? Hang on, oh God, sixty-five to sixty-six. Uh, to July 66, and the uh, Dawn of Man sequence, with the work with the actors was in 67. 67, yeah. So, so obviously it was a different time, you know, it, it, a different uh, and, and different circumstances with all this second unit work. And I guess the Stargate sequence also, that's uh, there's a lot of second unit work in there, and that was also done very late, uh, if, if I remember correctly. Uh, and the, the 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 one intriguing bit is that in autumn uh, 67. He also did all these uh, attempts to shoot the aliens, and I think I think I'm grateful that they failed. <laughs> all of these attempts to actually shoot the aliens, because they appear in a lot of the script drafts and treatments. They actually physically appear, uh, humanoid aliens, and he he did actually shoot a lot of test footage, and and he wasn't happy with it. And I think the film is so much richer for it. Of course, Spielberg then has to show them uh, at the end of Close Encounters. And that's fine, because that's Spielberg. And they became friends. It's all good. It's all good. But I'm very happy that... So, so I do think that uh, if you were to want to pursue this further, if you think there's a break, then one could look at different production circumstances. When principal photography, the main principal photography, took place, and when, as part of post-production, the, 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 the Stargate sequence and, and the, the hotel room sequence was done, and then the very end, uh, and when the, uh, the Dawn of Man sequence, it, it, it was, there was a temporal shift there, a, a different place in the production process. So you could pursue that further, but the, the people who actually were involved in the production of the film would be much better people to ask about this. I have, a, I have another thought. If you think of the film as pre-human passion, human passionless, and then post-human question mark, then I think the pieces fit together in, uh, in interesting ways. Matt, uh, thanks very much. Um, yeah, um, uh, this is a kind of a, I guess a sort of an observation. Right? So, uh, really interested in this idea of the legacy Balance of the art and the philosophical with the commercial as well. 
and we talked about some people like Ridley Scott, etc. One thing I think is quite interesting is someone like Robert Wise, who made The Day the Earth Stood Still in, what, 1958, I think? 51. Oh, 51. Then goes on to make Star Trek The Motion Picture in 79, which is, of all those films, probably the most influenced by 2001 with its kind of uh, influence on AI and artificial intelligence and the star feel at the end. Well, certainly it must aesthetically The influences of 50 science fiction on, the, on 2001 are amazing. There are graphics in Forbidden Planet that Kubrick copies for the Stargate um, scene in, in 2001. Um, so there really is a, a nice line of development of 50 science fiction, which is so demeaned, <laughs> but which is really quite wonderful. And then is sort of capped by what Kubrick does. I, I think it's interesting though that this film, or the, 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 the Star Trek Nostrative Society, it evades the influence of Star Wars, which came out two years earlier, but kind of tries to relate that to 2001. So it's, it's kind of everything's coming back to this. Well, well I would, uh, for me, the, the, the big, uh, the, 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 the filmmakers that do ideas emotion, science, all of it together, uh, you know, interstellar and, and, and gravity. Those, those are the two, for me, the two most important successes in some ways. And I can give you a, a very harsh critique of what I think is absolutely fundamentally wrong with the ideas that interstellar seems to be about and what is absolutely right with the sentimentality that, pen, uh, that pervades uh, gravity. But, uh, but I think in our discussions, we have a little discussion group philosophers at the cinema. Uh, we, we have been very interested in gravity and interstellar as, as follow-ups to uh, uh, 2001. And, and with Avatar as almost a, a kind of uh, uh, partial remake. I mean, it's most striking with the, the you know, the, the final shot being a character staring at the camera on you know, that kind of breaking through the fourth wall. But there's lots of other elements, especially if you're familiar with the production process of, of Avatar and what, what Cameron has said about 2001. But, but I think there's a lot there where, where these days where uh, commercially successful filmmakers, uh, whether you like their work or not, have the power now to make ideas movies again. You know, they, they can be scientifically based. They can be very, uh, um, uh, you know, they, they can have all kinds of dimensions, but they, they can put ideas back at the center of their filmmaking in, in addition to everything else. Uh, and I think the that's it makes perfect sense that Christopher Nolan is involved in the, the, the relaunch of, of 2001. Uh, uh, and uh, I, it, for me, it makes perfect sense that, that Cameron says that even today, you know, 2001 is his favorite movie. Uh, so I think the, the, the long-term impact maybe is now felt more than ever. Since on the subject of Kubrick's physical responsibility again, uh, uh, so a lot of his movies are uh, based on social materials, uh, like Orange, uh, Space Odyssey, they have um, uh, something you see quite uh, regularly in the 
a commercially successful book. I was just wondering what you felt uh, Kubrick adapted to towards uh, the source material for his film was, whether he felt uh, it was a, a, was it a cynical kind of, uh, I can make the movie I want to make because this book was commercially successful, or uh, was he inspired no, by the book? Um, I mean, obviously, he did adapt some books that were commercially successful, like Lolita and The Shining, but very often he didn't. Clockwork Orange was a bit of a cult hit, but wasn't it? They were going to make a film with the Rolling Stones in the early 1960s, which would have been great. But quite a lot of them weren't well known books at all. Barry Lyndon was certainly much less well known than Vanity Fair, for example. And I guess that gave him a certain kind of freedom that you're not dealing with a masterpiece, in a sense. You can do something, something very different with it and make it your own, which obviously got up Stephen King's nose in some way. <laughs> but I think. One of the things that's quite striking in the way in which Kubrick adapted is that there often seems to be almost a desire to show what film can do and the literature can't. So it's kind of an inversion of the usual idea that films can't do ideas or films can't show emotions or kind of inner states in this particular kind of way that the translation to film is always a certain kind of dumbing down. You know, look what Hollywood does to, to novels. I think Kubrick deliberately shows what film can do differently from the original source. And it's sort of like a sustained endeavour to show that film is as closely related to music and to art. I mean, the impact of the influence of, say, colour field paintings, people like Barnett Newman or Mark Rothko on on 2001, quite striking, I think, um, that you can use abstraction to communicate ideas as well as just emotions. So it's part of a sort of a long conversation with literature to kind of pull film away from literary, literary ideas towards something that's absolutely new, which can affect audiences on a subconscious level um, in the way that painting or particularly music can do. So it's almost like he chooses literature and adapts it in ways that really break it away from its literary origins to show the independence of film from literature. That tends to be the way I look at it. Somewhat ironically, of course, in, he, with one exception, I believe, he never worked with professional scriptwriters. Mm. Frederick Raffrell being the one exception, the others that he tended to work with, at least on the films he made, but I believe also with almost all the films he, he worked on but didn't make, they tended to be not professional scriptwriters, but novelists or poets uh, or something else. So, so there is this irony that he actually wants to work with people who are masters of the word, but then he wants to achieve something completely different. And of course, the, the reason why he worked with Clark uh, on, on 2001 was that he, I think Roger Karras told him that, he, that you know, obviously there's three big names in the field of hard science fiction. Hard science fiction, I guess, it's the classic science fiction, which, which is meant to be, in the novel tradition, it's meant to be scientifically accurate. Uh, um, uh, but uh, so, so there were three big names, uh, Asimov, Heinlein, and Clark, and uh, Karas happened to be friends with Clark. Uh, that's uh, what I reread recently. Uh, so, so that's how Clark... Just imagine Heinlein. 
You know, that, that would have been, Kubrick Heinlein would have been interesting. The whole Overman and Nietzsche references and everything would have taken on, I think, possibly a very different color, coloring. Uh, but he ended up with, with Clark, and, and I looked at the early correspondence between Clark and Kubrick, and it seemed to me, and I know people have done much more work on it now, uh, because it's such a wonderful source in, in the Kubrick archive, all the, uh, the, the, the treatments and the scripts and all the notes about them. But it seemed to me that Clark really came up with the basic plot. Uh, you know, the starting point was a short story that he had written, which is just one tiny little scene. Uh, and then, but Clark from the beginning said, and uh, look, Childhood's End, everyone says it's my favorite movie, it's my best, my best novel. Why don't, yeah, I'm reworking it anyway, because that's what Clark did. He always rewrote something he'd already done. Uh, and so he said, I'm reworking it anyway, so let's do that. Let's combine Sentinel of Eternity with Childhood's End and see what happens. And I think that's basically what they did. But they had lots of interesting discussions. You know, even I've, I've looked at a few hundred pages. I, I think there's a few thousand pages there. Uh, but but it, it seemed to me they had some very interesting discussions about, you know, what, what is that story that we're developing really about? And it, it really flip-flopped from, from something which I would interpret as, as largely uh, being hopeful and, and optimistic uh, to something which is, is deeply, deeply pessimistic. Uh, I think the optimistic side won. Uh, not because Clark had his way, uh, but I think there's something in the, the the period at which this film was made and the situation, you know, the, the way that Kubrick wanted to make uh, his own response to doc the ending of Dr. Strangelove. That would be my argument. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the optimistic uh, dimension of what, what uh, humanity is, is capable of uh, expressed not in a, in, a, in a sort of argumentative way, but in a, in a visual way, the, the star child at the end, as pure potential. Uh, I think that won out in the end. But during the, the script writing process, there was a lot of material which was e e extremely dark. Uh, what if the aliens are machines and they hate organic life and they want to destroy us all? You know, what, what about that story? And Clark says, you know, yeah, Kubik thinks it's a good idea. And then you know, that's in his diary. So, so I think there is uh, a lot to be said about the particular history of what kind of adaptation. And actually, uh, uh, Ian has written about this, that, that the novel we know is in effect a novelization. The novel 2001 yeah, Space Odyssey is in effect a novelization. It's about the only Kubrick film in which there's nothing in the credits of that sort. People say it's based on the Sentinel or a couple mm. of other stories. Well, if you look at the backstory, yeah, okay, that's part of it. But if you look at the credits, it says nothing about mm. it being based on the source. That's entirely extra textual knowledge. Um, the novel was only written to do the Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Then they didn't want the novel to be written at all. But, you know, Arthur is a writer, and you know, so they were friends, and so. Yeah, standing over the okay for the novel. And uh, in some sense, as the development went along, Kubrick was sort of saying, "We're going to make this film even less like the novel. You know, make it as less, least less, unlike the novel as possible, as possible, and take out all the expansion stuff that Clark was put in." And Clark got tired of rewriting, so in the novel they fly to Saturn, and in the film they fly to Jupiter, because Clark just said. I'm not going to rewrite it again. <laughs> so that's why you have this divergence. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Hey, we're going to continue this special multi-part presentation of the 2001 Beyond 
150 event in our next installment of Kubrick's Universe. Again, thanks to Nathan Abrams for allowing us to broadcast this one-of-a-kind event and to all the speakers in this episode. As usual, big thanks to our show's producer and editor, Stephen Rigg, and from the team at SCAS, our awesome researchers, James Marinaccio and Mark Lentz. I also got to tip the cap to James once again for selecting more brilliant outro music, the classic Daisy Bell, also known as On a Bicycle Built for Two, from Nat King Cole's 1963 recording. Daisy Bell is a bit of a timeless song, originally written back in 1892. They, they, they were still planning the Titanic back then, okay? It was composed by a British songwriter named Harry Dacre. Dacre? I'm probably butchering that either way. Um, but it's D-A-C-R-E. And it is worth noting, seriously, that it's the first song ever sung, quote-unquote. Yeah, I'm actually doing that thing with my fingers where I make quotation marks. I should be embarrassed. Is the first song ever sung by a computer, which utilized, at that time, a brand new program which was developed for speech synthesis. I'll leave you with this. I, I recently grabbed my iPhone, I'm not making this up, and I asked Siri to sing me the classic Daisy Bell. And you know what? She still ain't got nothing on Hal. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. See you next time. Jason Furlong. Catch you on the flip side. Peace. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. I'm half crazy, all for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage. I can't afford a carriage. But you'll look sweet upon the seat of a bicycle built for two. pre-recorded briefing made prior to your departure and which for security reasons of the highest importance has been known on board during the mission only by your HAL 9000 computer. Now that you are in Jupiter's space 
and the entire crew is revived. It can be told to you. Eighteen months ago, the first evidence of intelligent life off the Earth was discovered. It was buried 40 feet below the lunar surface, near the crater Tycho. Except for a single, very powerful radio emission aimed at Jupiter, the four-million-year-old black monolith has remained completely inert. Its origin and purpose still a total mystery. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon.